This podcast was brought to you by Optus Stadium. Now taking orders for your next breakfast or lunch meeting. Good afternoon and welcome to At Close of Business, a daily podcast hosted by Business News. As debate rages over when Australia can fully reopen its economy, today's senior journalist Matt McKenzie discusses the Doherty Institute's modelling, alternate modelling, and when WA can expect to reopen to the rest of the country. But first, here's the news you need to know today. Liquidators from EY have been appointed to six entities of construction business Jackson Group today, just weeks after cash flow issues brought work at its Forest Hall project to a halt. In a statement released this afternoon, liquidators Sam Freeman, Vincent Smith and Justin Walsh confirmed operations of the group had officially ceased and that they were urgently assessing its financial situation. The WA-based builder, which is part of WA-owned Doric Jackson Consolidated, led by Chairman Harry Zaitis, attributed the failure to the pandemic and tight margins, having lost 60% of its revenue as a result of projects being delayed or cancelled. Jackson specialises in commercial and large-scale accommodation projects and has four major projects underway, including St Louise's $11.4 million Dean Street Apartments in Claremont. Just two weeks ago, representatives of Jackson told Business News it had paid the majority of its contractors on its Forest Hall project, a development funded by Mindaroo Foundation as part of a scholarship program at the University of WA. That followed reports that work had stopped at that site and on other Jackson and projects with subcontractors unable to be paid and some owed up to two weeks worth of cash. Despite the company's claims that work was getting back underway, days later the site was empty. Former general manager Russell Perkins exited the business in recent weeks and Tony Morganti left as chief financial officer earlier this year. The WA-based construction company is the second to collapse in the past four months. In May, Business News revealed construction company Pindan was on the brink of collapse, with the company later entering administration led by EY. And Wes Farmers, which owns Bunnings Hardware Stores and other big-name retailers, has lifted annual profit by 16% and plans to return more than $2 billion to shareholders after a strong year. Net profit, excluding significant items related to the closure of multiple Target stores and the conversion of others to Kmart, rose to $2.4 billion in the last financial year, from $2.1 billion the year before. A 10% rise in group revenue to $33.9 billion was mostly driven by customers working from home and generally spending more time at home during the coronavirus pandemic. The Kmart operations recorded the biggest rise in pre-tax earnings at 69%, followed by Bunnings at 19.7% and Officeworks at 7.6%. West Farmers shareholders will get a final dividend for the year of $1.78, up 17% on the year before, taking the total payout for the year to $2.78. 66 cents. The company also plans to return surplus cash to shareholders, totaling $2.3 billion or $2 per share. But the capital return must first be approved by shareholders at an annual general meeting in October. If approved, shareholders will get their money in early December. Wes Farmers also owns a chemicals, energy and fertilisers division and an industrial and safety unit. And in other news, Feral Brewing Company is closing its Swan Valley venue after it chose not to renew its lease and says it has no immediate plans to open a new brew pub. 
A statement released by the company, which was acquired by Coca-Cola in 2017, said it would close the venue on Saturday, October 3rd. It said the brewery's experimental pilot plant would be moved to the company's Bassendine production facility and that its beers would be available in bottle shops and in pubs. A spokesperson told Business News Feral Brewing Company did not have a new venue works to replace the site, but that they had not ruled out opening a new pub in the future. According to Business News' data and insights, Feral Brewing Co. is the third largest brewery in WA. We'll be right back. We understand that business relies on being informed. That's why Business News is your most reliable source of news, industry insights and business connections. To stay fully informed, we encourage you to subscribe to our emails, flick through our magazine and visit businessnews.com.au for daily news updates. It's the best way to ensure you have the information you need to be future ready. Business News. More news, more insights, more connections. Matt, I wasn't alive for the soaring rhetoric of the uh, Hawke-Keating years, but uh, there were some comments this week that uh, felt very much like being flogged by warm lettuce. Can you tell me why it is that we're talking about a film from 2013 that I haven't seen and haven't thought about in just as much time? Well, I think the the immediate answer is to say Scott Morrison loves this sort of folksy stuff. You know, he probably got his staff to say, oh, yeah, can you guys find a movie that's about this? I mean, maybe he's seen it, maybe he hasn't. But one thing I will say about this is, look, you know, He's just trying to use a metaphor. He's trying to be a plain speaking sort of guy. And the thing that got me about this whole Croods reference is, you know, he's he's in this interview with Carl Stekanovic. He says, it's like the movie The Croods. Some people wanted to stay in the cave. Um, and the young girl, she wanted to go out and live again and deal with the challenges of living in a different world. Well, COVID is a new different world and we need to get out there and live in it, which is, um, uh, well, not precisely the rhetorical strand that I would be using. Uh, then he says, we can't stay in the cave. Uh, we can't stay in the cave and we can get out of it safely. That's what the plan does. Not exactly how I would approach it, but whatever, it is what it is. What really got to me was at least one major news outlet then went and said, uh, Scott Morrison accuses West Australians of living in, of being cave people or something, or living in caves. Um, and I didn't screenshot it at the time. And I can tell you a couple of hours later when I went back, it had been very much rewritten. Uh, but it was intriguing. And I think it was an example of where sometimes journalists go a little bit too far because there was no mention of WI or anything like that. It's just some general, you know, it's just a general metaphor saying, you know, we need to get out there and explore the world and it's fine. Um, so I don't think he was intending to say that West Australians are cave people. Uh, and I think it's not very useful to be suggesting that he was. Now, speaking of people who have been accused of being cave people, uh, in the, the wrap-up of all of this, many premiers have very differing views, Jordan. Something that's come to my attention this week is some prevailing commentary among some quarters that Western Australia and Queensland, under certain Labour premiers, are being recalcitrants and refusing to yield to a national plan for quote-unquote reopening that was set out by National Cabinet on August 6, and I could talk in unspecific terms, but there's actually an editorial here in The Australian that caught my eye, and uh, if I can paraphrase some uh, sentences from that, to the effect of, of politicians in Australia gaining a taste for authoritarianism, and that uh, Mark McGowan had walked away from the National Cabinet reopening deal. Uh, and furthermore, that uh, Mr McGowan was keen to break from the national consensus and enforce mandatory vaccination for certain industries, including mining, which though he has said it all adds up to this idea that Mark McGowan is walking away from the reopening plan that was set out by National Cabinet. And 
I think the thing that's really stuck out to me was that, to be clear, what National Cabinet has agreed to is, as far as we're aware, because their deliberations are at present protected by Cabinet and Confidence, what they've agreed to is this single-page document that outlays a four-phase plan for reopening, in which phase B, which is the phase that we most commonly talk about as that lowest threshold at which we can reopen, uh, is triggered by a 70% vaccination rate among adults. Even at that point, there is allowance for lockdowns in extreme circumstances, and there is also an allowance for restrictions like mask wearing and social distancing. Even at 80%, there is still room for lockdowns, according to this plan. I'd also like to note that at the bottom of this one-page document, there's an addendum that reads, the plan is based on the current situation and is subject to change if required. And again, this gets to this idea that certain premiers are saying, well, we didn't sign on to this plan when New South Wales was regularly recording upwards of 800, 900 cases per day. And again, there's been much criticism about whether that's pertinent, but I would say that this sentence here seems to suggest that, yes, it could be pertinent if, if this agreement was to be reformulated. I'd like to point out that this four-phase plan was based on modelling of what could happen over the next six months. This wasn't a policy that was handed over by the mm. Doherty Institute as to what policymakers should be doing. This was merely a projection or hypothetical situations that could happen at certain points. And even within that modelling, there's a variety of situations that create significant daylight between these 70 and 80% vaccination rates that get bandied about. Once again, these rates are based on the adult population. So when we talk about 70% vaccination rates, for instance, what we're talking about is 56% of the entire population. We're not talking about 70% of everyone. We're mm. discounting people under the age of 16. Even at that rate, if we're talking about partially effective tracking, tracing and quarantining efforts, which one could argue New South Wales is only being partially effective at this point because cases do continue to rise. The health outcomes, according to the document, are deaths of upwards of one and a half thousand people in the first six months. Whereas at 80%, with optimal tracing, testing and quarantining, the projected deaths in the first six months is just less than a thousand. So there is significant daylight. And I'm not surprised that there's premiers who look at these numbers and they do question the idea that the country might just reopen because one state gets to 70% vaccination rates. I think there is significant qualms there that are within the realms of the modelling and within the realms of the four-phase plan that are probably not being appreciated by the conversations, at least that I'm seeing in mm. certain corners. Now, Matt, the Australian National University and the Grattan Institute and the Australia Institute have all put out separate modelling in recent weeks as well, and they tell us very different things to the Doherty Institute. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, and one thing I'd just add there is when you look at the Doherty modelling for six months, uh, quite often, well, in some of the scenarios... The case levels and the death levels are still peak. They have not peaked at the end of the six months, which probably gives people a cause for concern because who knows what would happen six months after that. Um, ANU had some interesting work here. Uh, they've said uh, if 70% of Australians over 16 years of age are fully vaccinated, uh, a 95% level for those over 60, there could eventually become 6.9 million symptomatic COVID cases, 154,000 hospitalizations, and 29,000 fatalities. Assuming 80% um, for those over 16, then we've got 25,000 fatalities and 270,000 cases of long COVID, which is where people get COVID and then they have um, issues with their vascular system or whatever else for the long term. Uh, if con in contrast, if children are also fully vaccinated, 
um, national fatalities would be reduced to 19,000 with 80% coverage or 10,000 with 90% coverage. So, um, you know, I mean, this is not an easy thing, uh, whichever way you go. Um, and the truth is the numbers show, uh, well, even if you look at the Doherty's modeling, there will be some deaths. And I, I think people perhaps are maybe not prepared for that. Um, a few other thoughts. The Australia Institute said, I think it was this morning, actually, that in Doherty's modeling, they assumed... And it's always interesting when you look at reports to see what is assumed. Um, and to be fair to you, the Australia Institute is guilty of this one themselves when it comes to making assumptions. But they've said in the Doherty report that um, the test, uh, the tracking, the testing, the tracing um, and quarantine uh, capability is very significant in the Doherty modelling. Um, and it's stable. Its capability is stable regardless of the number of cases you have. Um, and the Australia Institute said, well, we're not sure that that's really realistic. If you've got a thousand cases, it's much harder to track and trace and test than if you've got, say, 20 cases. So that's fair enough. And then there's also been the suggestion um, that having different starting points, um, if you have different starting points for, uh, for reopening in terms of the case level, a thousand, like in New South Wales, versus 30, um, that you might get a different result. And Doherty have basically said, well, no, it just means you start at a different point in the curve. You might get that different result. Um, you know, it might be a few weeks different, but ultimately the number of deaths and the number of cases will be the same. But so what people, if people are effectively saying WA needs to just open up, 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 have a 70% vaccination rate um, and uh, don't worry about it, uh, you know, bring in the people from New South Wales who've got the COVID cases and it's all going to happen as it is anyway. I don't think West Australians are going to like that so much. And the leaders who, you, who do that, they will not be very popular when the deaths start to happen. One other thought just on this is what we have, what I've said, and Jordan, you know this, um, you know, right back in March last year, you and I were on a unity ticket on this one, even when much of the world was not. A short, quick, rapid lockdown has been most successful and it's been most successful in WA. And perhaps we're reaching a point where if we want to start reopening international borders, where that methodology won't be successful. But it certainly has been so far and we should, we should see that and we should acknowledge that. And a lot of these commentators think it's authoritarian but frankly governments do a lot of authoritarian things and we don't blink an eye so why are we so worried about trying to save people's lives um, having said that I understand why Gladys Berejiklian is wanting to do some reopening in New South Wales given they hit a particular vaccination level or they're soon to hit it um, <clears throat> because even though the best the best ideal circumstance is you've got you closed off to potential cases and you have your quick lockdown and all the rest of it um, the second best circumstance is not, I don't know, but I presume it may well not be just being in lockdown ad infinitum until you've got no cases. Um, at some point you reach a threshold where you can't get it under control or whatever, and so you need to rely on the vaccine and the tracing um, and rely on um, you know people uh, having to wear masks and all the rest of it rather than keeping them under, you know, keeping them in lockdown. So New South Wales might very well have reached that point. I'm not an expert, but it stands to reason that um, there may well be a time where it's more effective to just open things up and uh, um, alleviate some of the other burdens and costs of having a lockdown um, and try to rely on the high vaccine rate and all the rest of it. Matt, we've seen how challenging this situation is for every country in the world that's going through repeated waves of infection. We obviously know that at some point we will get over this. Uh, I just hope that here in Australia and here in WA, there's a way in which we can talk about this and there's a way in which we can discuss this that doesn't revolve around the political party of the Premier and actually discusses the health implications that can result from rapid infection in the community. So Matt, thank you so much for your time today. Very grateful to be a West Aussie, Jordan. This podcast was brought to you by Optus Stadium. 
now taking orders for your next breakfast or lunch meeting. If you like what you've heard, head to our Spotify page to like and subscribe. New episodes of At Close of Business are available every day in time for our afternoon wrap. I'm Jordan Murray. See you tomorrow.